know what we should do tomorrow. Keep drinking. We'll have a bloody merry first thing. Have a bite of the king's head, a couple of the little princess. We'll stagger back in. <laughs> back at the bar for chance. How's that for a slice of fried gum? I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So what's your name, Icy? Stuntman Mike. Stuntman Mike's your name. You ask anybody. Hey, Warren. Who is this guy? Stuntman Mike. Welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we do film studies type analysis over films that are never given film study type analysis in a film studies class. They're never on those syllabuses or syllabi, or however you pluralize those words. And we are going to be talking this week about The Hunger Games. Happy Hunger Games! And may the odds be ever in your favor. But before we do that, we've got to do some introductions. Moving right around the table to my left, sir, if you would. My name is Dalton Stewart, and I probably should not be standing next to an open flame. That's an excellent point you make, sir. Cross the table from me, if you would. I am Arthur Gordon, and I have returned from my adventures in the Australian outback going walkabout. We're glad to have you back, sir. To my right, if you would, ma'am. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and I volunteer as tribute. Excellent, excellent. Well, I guess I'll leave then. (laughs) (laughs) Show's over, folks. Thanks, bro. Go back to the house. It's a four-way analysis to the death. My name is Dustin Sells, and I'm just scared of burning to death. Uh, We're going to move right along, and we're going to talk about The Hunger Games. Now, we want to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, which means we're going to break the movie open. There's going to be a lot of spoilers, so we're going to wait until after we do our quick synopsis and our quick reviews to do that. But then after that, we are going to reveal who wins the cake-making competition that is The Hunger Games. But until then, uh, we are going to begin now with the voice of the cinema, Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. Katniss Everdeen voluntarily takes her younger sister's place in The Hunger Games, a televised fight to the death in which two teenagers from each of the 12 districts of Panem are chosen at random to compete. It's like gladiator games, except for in the future. And, uh, More death. And, Dystopia. And sad. Lots of sad feels, deep feels. I have the deals. So uh, anyway, thank you for that great synopsis. I think we generally know what's going on if we haven't heard of this thing called the Hunger Games. Let's move on though and do our quick reviews. Just thumbs up, thumbs down, very quickly. Does it work or does it not? Maybe a reason or two why. I begin to my right, Miss Alexander Bohannon, if you would please. I'm first. Delightful. Well, 
Um, I think it works. It works pretty well. I I saw it first. Well, I'm going to be a hipster for a bit. I did read this in <laughs> high school back in 2009 before this was really a big movement because I knew Suzanne Collins from a different book series. I thought you were going to say I knew Suzanne Collins. I knew her personally. <laughs> well, me and, and Susie go way back. Yeah. Yeah. No, she has... You said she was in high school in 2009. Yeah. Go on. When did yeah. she graduate? 2009. Okay, me too. Yeah. I was like, I cannot be lumped in with them as being old. That's unacceptable. Anyway, she has another series called Gregor the Overlander. It's really good. It's more of a children's series. Moving right along. I watched The Hunger Games the first time in theaters, and I was a lot more familiar with how the book operated. I did not like it in theaters. I actually hated it. I thought it was a terrible movie, and I was like, well, I will never see that again. That hype is overdone, and I'll just go on with my very life. Well, to fast forward to now, I think the movie is actually really good. I surprised myself, in fact, um, that I enjoyed it, and the way that they transitioned, you know, the first-person narrative to the third person was really interesting. I know we're going to have some discussion and deliberation on uh, point of view switching in our analysis today and book adaptation, but... I I enjoyed it a lot better. There are still some issues, I think, in it, but I think they did a solid job considering they had to do the work they did, and it was a lot of book for, you know, only a two-hour movie, and they're going to split the last one into two parts, so they could have done that with every of all of the movies. There's a lot of stuff in there. I would say that it could have used to be more violent, but that is definitely not the target demographic. Because the books are super violent, and that would be it would have been a little more interesting. But overall, at least a solid three full trash cans out of five trash cans. Thank you very much, Miss Bohannon, uh, for that review, Mister Dalton Stewart. What do you say? Well, um, discerning listeners might remember at the end of last episode that I said I hate this film, and I was so not excited about doing an episode over it. Uh, I also. It's all in the theater. I got dragged to a a midnight showing. Um, Some friends that were into the books. And as soon as I walked out, I was like, I do not understand what the big deal is. Uh, In hindsight now, looking back after this being only the second time I watched it, I realized that I was having a really visceral reaction to something because it was so damn popular. Yes. Which is weird because I normally don't do that. Uh, I normally don't really care how popular something is. Um, I love a lot of very popular things. Um, but I think I was reacting so strongly because it was something that I didn't get, which might mean that I'm old now, because there are things that people like that I don't understand why. Um, but I, I, you know, it works for the most part. I still don't love it. I, I don't, it doesn't drag me in. I'm not sure what it is about the Hunger Games, uh, the starving sports, if you will, that keeps me at arm's distance, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there is something there. Uh, we talked about it being, a uh, heartstring tuggy. Uh, the only time my heartstrings really tugged, and this is probably really weird, is when the professional murderer from the rich kid land is like... He is the moment. It's basically like, fuck it. Like, I, I guess I was always dead, and I just am now realizing, I was like, that's depressing. Wow. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, was, really... that was definitely added in, because I don't think, well, from what I remember, Cato 
didn't have that kind of moment of self-realization at the end of the book. But they had some more interesting psychological horror bits, which I wish they could have kept in, but that's okay. I, I just, you know, as a beautiful murderer, I feel like I really related to him. As a beautiful so. murderer? <laughs> Quote of the week. Wow. Um, but yeah, no, that moment for me was really strong, and obviously, yeah, I volunteer's tribute, that's, that's, that's nice. And I volunteer's tribute! I like the film. It works. I don't still love it. I still am annoyed that they take the shortcut of you can tell it's the future because everyone's got a silly name and you can tell they're rich because they're dressed really silly. Yes. That no, I didn't ha- I had a big problem with that, that too, again. That's fine for me and, and people are like, Dalton, you like Star Wars and everybody that's got a stupid ass name. Yeah, but it's fantasy science fiction. It's 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 a space opera. This is supposed to be like grounded, realistic, post apocalyptic sci fi. I don't. It's only like 200 years in the future. Why are people named Cat P? I don't understand. It doesn't make. And I know that's a weird nitpicky thing to get hung up on, but it, it's bothersome to me. Yeah. I feel like there are easier ways to distinguish yourself as being the future um, than dumb names or and the like, rich people future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a big problem with that too because you have this. I really, for the first time, re- appreciated. Wow, this is definitely. Kind of still in America. It looks like rural Arkansas, District 12, really yeah, Ozarky. Like, yeah, you know, West Virginia. Yeah, and then yeah. you get this total like breaking moment when Effie Trinket steps out with her absolutely absurd fashion. I get it's supposed to be jarring and a big contrast, but it could have been a little more understated. Easy career. You know what that is? From District 1. And 2. They train in a special academy until they're 18. Then they volunteer. By that point, they're pretty lethal. But they don't receive any special treatment. In fact, they stay in the exact same apartment as you do. And I don't think they let them have dessert. And you can. I mean, it no, didn't have to be so spooky. That said, it, they're really good. Like, they're well-made costumes. Oh, I mean, of looks, course. Yeah, and they I mean, look fine, but it's just... It's a weird nitpicky thing to get hung up on. I will say this, wrapping up. Jennifer Lawrence is fantastic in this movie. She is so good. And she's great in everything she does. Thank God for me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Try to take the nutrition out of our children's food. Thank God for me. It's a great line. Anytime you fuck up, uh, you should go ahead and say thank God for me. Um, <laughs> make everyone be happy that you you did something bad. I like Jennifer Lawrence's. I, that speaking of things that are popular that I still like, Jennifer Lawrence is one of them. I think she's great. She's great in everything she's done. Winner's Bone is a fantastic film that you should watch. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've got to say review-wise. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Do you like this movie? Does it work? And why or why not? Uh, I'm kind of torn. Uh, the first time I saw this, I wasn't really blown away. Kind of like Alexandra. It's, it just, I don't know. And like Dalton, it didn't connect uh, for me in theaters. It just felt, uh, after reading the books, it just kind of felt like it's a streamlining of the novel. Mm-hmm. And there was, that was on my mind. And so... It, it wouldn't connect uh, but watching here again I, I like a lot of the visuals um, I think Gary Ross does a good job he has a good eye I like Pleasantville and he's again playing with those color palettes and that integration of color and stark and that contrast mm-hmm. uh, the budget here is a bit low and at times it shows but for the most part they do a good job making their weaknesses or masking their weaknesses what do, do you think sorry to interrupt the low budget shows because I don't have as trained an eye as you do a lot of the visual stuff when they try to do big it looks like they when they try to integrate a lot of the CGI stuff mm-hmm. in their bigger shots in the capital, especially. Oh yeah. Uh, once they get out in the, the games, it's not it doesn't show because it's, it's all just dumb woods. Show woods. Up. Yeah, woods. it's mainly in the capital when it shows. I think. You mean the Ghostbusters dogs? Yeah, the Ghostbusters dogs show up and they look worse than they did in Ghostbusters, which is a problem. Okay, so she's a dog.
Uh, they have not <laughs> aged well. Uh, the years have been about as kind to them as they were to our, our good friend Ivan Reitman. But I, I agree, Arthur. I think the budget shows, and especially those, yeah, like, look how many people are in this auditorium. There's nobody no. in that auditorium. I think it has a tight direction, has a great pace. I love Jennifer Lawrence. As Dalton said, I like Woody Harrelson. Mm. A lot of the bit players here. We got Don Sutherland, who's fun. Uh, Stanley Tucci, who I think is great here. Oh, and uh, yeah. Toby he, Jones. He was so good. Toby Jones and Stanley Tucci. <laughs> He's can fun. Do They're wrong. fun. Yeah. They're just Such fun. Such a great team together. Um, I think it gets a lot of that stuff right and it's well crafted. I just It feels like it's missing something to, to make a real connection. I don't know what it is, but there's something just lacking. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Agreed. I don't know what it is though. And I yeah, wish I, did. I know what you're saying. It's like it lacks a heart. It's I, like a soulless monster. I feel like one made of things, to make money. Made to make from a money. machine. Yeah. Well, Dustin, what do you think about this? We're all kind I of. I want to hear. I want to hear what you I, think. About I'm a soul. first time watcher of the movie. I've not read a single novel. I don't. I mean, I'm aware. Mm-hmm. I live on planet. He has Earth. never read a novel. I've read no novels of any sort ever. In fact, I don't even know how to read. I'm illiterate. That's why I do film studies. <laughs> and uh, so there's no reading for me because books are done. All that Zizek he's always talking about. He listened to the audio book. Don't. <laughs> it's all podcast information. It's the only way I know anything. And moving right along. So I, I didn't have any sort of background or any sort of expectations one way or the other. I knew it was quite popular. And uh, just in the list of things, there's a lot of movies, and it's just one I hadn't gotten to. Mm-hmm. So I watched it for the first time, and I thought it was really great. I mean, I had no negative feelings. I thought, this is, this is as far as blockbuster fares goes, this is as good as one could expect. I, I don't have any real niggling problems I don't have any I mean uh, there are moments when the CGI is kind of crazy the fire that she's wearing and those sort of things like yeah that looks like you painted that on and it doesn't look like the right kind of thing in effect and the crowds and and those sort of integration problems that that sometimes the lower budget has when they're trying to make a movie with a greater scope although I wonder what that movie would have been had they not bothered showing all these inserts of the capital and all the scope and made it much more of a psychological drama if that had not improved the film. But nonetheless, what I had I thought was was quite fine. What I really enjoyed about it was the direction. I thought the direction mm-hmm. was brilliant because he shifts styles three times in the film. There is a subtle, subtle shift. There's handheld camera use at all times during the film. But what happens in the first act at Appalachia or District 12, it's a social realist sort of uh, style that you might see a uh, contemporary film something like Fish Tank starring Michael mm-hmm. Fassbender mm-hmm. where you see this sort of style being employed and there are other places where this would occur as well but uh, British realism I think is a good place to find it, precisely just the exact sort of framing that's going on here and then it shifts when it gets over into the capital mm-hmm. and you start having some tripod shots you start mm-hmm. having some crane shots you start having some this sort of cinematic motion to the camera but they're still making a lot of use of handhelds but they're using handhelds in a sense much like a movie or a television series like The Office where it's it, it's sort of observer on the wall but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily trying to move in order to show motion that shows emotion it's just moving motion as in I'm a third party observer, I'm a voyeur, I'm investigating into some place that I don't belong, I'm not invited here, like a television program, mm. which is what 90% of what happens yeah. in the show. And then when they move over into the actual games themselves proper, the editing and the movement of the camera gets much quicker and it looks like one of the Bourne films. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it looks like some work that Karan did at, at, in, in Children of Men. And, and so there's a, there's a third shift where this handheld camera use is being used in ways to, to, to depict specifically what's going on. And noticing that as I experienced the film, I thought, this is just formally 
Mm-hmm. Just visually, really brilliant. Um, Jennifer Lawrence's performance is great. Mm-hmm. I think the story and the idea of the rebellion and all that I think is fantastic. It it left me wanting to see the sequel. But let's. I mean, trash cans. What are we talking here? Uh, I, I would give it probably 184 trash cans out of a possible uh, 211. Okay, because I'm I'm more out of like a, you know, 13 trash cans out of a, a possible 22. I mean, you know, just north of meh. Yeah, I mean, solid. In, in, in a yeah. grade scale, I'm, it's, a, it's a solid B plus A minus range. Okay. I, I mean, okay. I, I, as far as I mean, again, considering what it is, it's a summer blockbuster. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not looking at a Boonwell pick. Yeah. I'm not the, considering a Hitchcock film I, here. I, it, so. And I have watched not all of Catching Fire, but I was watching it under a timeline, and the fact that I was delaying leaving my friend's house to go do something important mm. because I was like, okay. It was five more minutes, and I kept watching, and it's like five minutes. Oh, maybe another five minutes, and then I got people calling me. Okay, I gotta go actually, but I mean, I was definitely yeah. I was hooked yeah. from the beginning. Okay. I love the sequel. Fire. Really, I love the sequel a lot more. I watched it. I, I think it was one of my top ten mm-hmm. of last year. So, so good to know. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on now and do our analysis. Let's break this thing apart and talk about what's going on the inside. We've missed you so much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. You get the honor, sir. Why don't you go ahead and let us know what you're thinking? Uh, one of the biggest feats for the Hunger Games film to accomplish in its adaptation uh, was this presentation of material in a first-person point of view and shifting that to a third-person point of view, uh, which audiences could connect with. Dustin has already kind of hit on this, talking about this voyeuristic camera put inside of a training room and lets us enter this world, uh, which the books did not allow us to do um, in the same way. Uh, we've talked a bit about point of view before, especially in regards to Maniac and Silence of the Lambs. Uh, but here it is interesting because you couldn't do much first-person work in a film like Hunger Games. Uh, you may have a few point of view and shot, uh, point of view shots where you may be running through the woods, mm-hmm. something like that. But typical large extended sequences you couldn't do uh, point of view wise uh, in that same way. Um, so they have to manipulate all three books to work in a third-person world and get all that expository information out of Katniss's head. Uh, and into a world where it exists outside of her mind, which could be troublesome in a couple of different ways because with the books being told from the first person, uh, we have to question reliability of narrator. And so that changes going into the film where they have to take and make uh, assertions with the facts that they choose to use in the film. That third-person omniscience always indicates that this is the facts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, director and co-writer Gary Ross, cinematographer Tom Stern, uh, who has shot every Clint Eastwood Helm project since Bloodwork, uh, right before Mystic River, uh, both do a good job of capturing and presenting much of this expository information without spelling it out completely. Uh, this is done in three primary ways, expository titles, mise-en-scene, and expository dialogue. Now, expository titles are something we're very familiar with. Go back to the days of silent cinema, uh, where we get a screen with text on it giving pertinent information. Uh, here in The Hunger Games, we get a bit of the history of Panem and why the games began. This clears up much of that trouble and instantly sets the stage for where we are in this society. Uh, these types of title cards are sometimes off-putting, or some directors like Hitchcock and Kubrick would use them for no real reason, specifically thinking of Psycho and The Shining, where they just kind of appear because that's what you do. Being postmodern, yeah. Uh, but here Ross utilizes a few of them and does it just enough so that we get only the most bare-bones and relevant information. And it's quite reminiscent of the scroll at the beginning of the Star Wars films, which is arguably the pinnacle of title card making. Uh, the second way in which we see this is through the use of mise-en-scene, a term I like to use and talk about a lot, and refers to a number of different aspects such as set design, costuming, lighting, and camera work uh, to reveal expository information to the audience uh, so that dialogue isn't wasted in, in such a way. Uh, we get quite a few examples of this throughout. 
Uh, nearly from the get-go, in several throwaway shots, we catch glimpses of coal trucks, which let us know that this is a coal mining district. Uh, if you're geographically aware, um, you may connect the dots that we're somewhere in West Virginia, Philadelphia, the Appalachian Range. Almost heaven, West Virginia. Another example of this use of mise-en-scene uh, is the flashback in which we see a fireplace and a photo of a man above it, then a jump cut to some miners going down a mine shaft, which jump cuts to an explosion and backdraft through the fireplace, and then a cut to Katniss yelling at her mom. And this very quick sequence ultimately tells us the story and whereabouts of Katniss's father. It also shows us how it affected Katniss emotionally, and it furthers the why behind her relationship with her mother and the way she treats her early on. So instead of allowing us to get this information inside of Katniss's head or through over, you know, voiceover narration, we just get to put the pieces together and infer it ourselves, and, and it works really well. Too, yeah. Yes. Uh, the other strong example of this comes from camera work, and it's another classic trick. And I'm thinking specifically of the sequence in which Katniss gets stung, and the poison is running through her system. She is her first big attack on the uh, the other tributes. She drops the nest on them of the tracker jackers, and uh, she winds up getting stung by a few. In the sequence, we get a lot of tilting cameras. Uh, we move into slow motion. We get choppy editing, all of which is done to reflect this clouded and almost drunken state that Katniss has entered. And this is a great nod to the book, where when Katniss is stung, she states, quote, Holding tightly to my bow and arrows, banging into trees that appear out of nowhere, tripping and falling as I try to keep my balance, the world begins to bend in alarming ways, end quote. So it's reflecting that same clouded uh, sense that she has in her mind. And the other side of this would be to show fear. The camera work may become more fast-paced, maybe more shaky camera work, and a lot of just thrashing through the woods, this very panicky style of jump editing. Um, the third trick in translating from first-person point of view to third-person is finding another way to present more information without overusing titles. Uh, so this last bit of info relay comes through expository characters. Several characters here get a, a bit of this dialogue, this throwaway-style dialogue that kind of relates information. Uh, but it is truly Stanley Tucci's Caesar Flickman who fills this role throughout the film. Um, his work as the master of ceremonies for the games and color commentator really allows for us to relay much of this expository information. Uh, and this is a familiar character type uh, to fill this role. Um, we see this in a lot of adventure films. Uh, someone who moves the plot along and gets things from A to B. Uh, we see it with Kim Cattrall in Big Trouble in Little China, uh, who does it quite annoyingly. Uh, we also see it from Legolas quite often in Lord of the Rings, uh, where he acts primarily to inform us of plot changes in detail, such as the hobbits going to Isengard. <laughs> Uh, Tucci's work here is great. Uh, he has such a natural charisma and likability that he does very well in this announcer master of ceremonies role, uh, which serves perfectly to give us this background. Uh, in the book, all of this information is given us in Katniss's mind, but in the film, much of this falls on Flickman's shoulders, uh, played by Tucci. And the presentation works in setting it up as the movie-going audience is part of the Pan Am population. It's as if we're watching The Hunger Games with the rest of the districts. Mm -hmm. And so we get a lot of these phrases, such as, uh, for those watching at home. The series had a very tricky job in not only condensing information, uh, but condensing information from a first-person perspective and molding it to fit a third-person world. Yeah, thank you so much, Arthur, for um, and really uh, opened up the screenwriting processes for us because I mean that's what they had to do when they sat down. Okay, well, how are we going to make this into a movie without hours and hours and hours of voiceover? We can't make a film noir with Humphrey Bogart with this. That would have been interesting. Man, <laughs> that would have been so cool. I don't know. I think it would have got. I would have got cumbersome pretty quick. I think. <laughs> or Harrison Ford. 
Oh, that would that would be over. excellent. Yeah, you know he loves doing that. You know, yeah, I've heard. Moving right along, <laughs> we're going to see what other analysis that we have today, and I'm going to ask you, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you think, sir? Well, I want to do that thing I do sometimes, where I want to talk about one thing so I can talk about something else. Pan Am, which is the United States, North America, in this film, mm-hmm. um, comes from, and I'm, I'm assuming this is intentional. There's no way it's not. Uh, the Latin for bread and circuses. Yes. Uh, which I don't speak Latin. I didn't take Latin, so I don't know how to say those things. So bread and circuses is what we're talking about here, people. And I, I think Colin's novel is very intentionally trying to comment on our on our spectator culture uh, and our desire to be distracted from our problems. And that's what The Hunger Games uh, really represents here, is this excuse to show violence um, to make people forget how miserable their lives are. Uh, let's not forget about the Roman Empire, who pioneered this really magnificent, wonderful thing. Uh, here in actual America, we have this in the way of, I don't know, MMA fighting, Football. reality shows, blockbuster films. Um, that's our bread. And I, I think it's it's an important thing for us to have a film that is discussing, even if it is maybe part of the problem, uh, that is discussing... Any, I'm, you know, I'm not above this. I, I'm part of the problem, too. But I think it's important for us to, you know, have our cake and eat it too in so much as that we take the time to recognize that there is more going on than the Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice teaser trailer at Comic-Con. We need to actually be engaged in what's really happening, uh, whether it's, you know, two children being taken from the outlying districts to be killed or thousands of young people being drafted to go die for, again, in both scenarios, really not any good reason at all. Now, I talk about bread and circuses to talk about this. The bread we eat is important because it informs our culture in a lot of ways. And I'm glad that The Hunger Games is becoming the bread that, you know, people from what, 10 to 16, is that what the core demographic for the series probably? I'm glad that's the bread they're eating um, because they were eating Twilight's bread, and that's a problem. And here's what we're going to talk about. There is no Hunger Games film without Twilight. Let's get that straight off the table. Since Twilight was released, uh, we have seen about six YA novel series be attempted to uh, be adapted in the next, quote, the next Twilight, which is what every single, uh, you know, Hollywood news, Hollywood business news will say when one of these gets announced. The next Twilight, question mark? Divergent? The beautiful bones of cities? I don't... I don't City of bones. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. My point is beautiful creatures. That was the other one I was thinking of. Now, a lot of these have failed yes. miserably. Uh, Hunger Games seems to be the only one that's actually been successful. I don't know about the Shaley Woodley one. I like her. I don't know if Divergent was any kind of successful. But the Hunger Games is, and I think that's a good thing. Now, again, we've already talked about how bread can be a problem. Uh, but I don't feel like The Hunger Games is so much part of the problem because it's telling us something that we need to hear. One, don't believe everything you read. Two, question it when rich people are telling it to you. And three, a woman doesn't need a man. And if she does, she can use him to her advantage and not the other way around. Because the problem with Twilight, and I know we're talking about The Hunger Games today, but I'm going to talk about this because we're never going to do that movie on this show. Um, the problem with Twilight is that it enforces the patriarchy in so much as that it tells you three things if you're a young woman. One, get married as early as you can. Two, don't make any decisions without con- first consulting your dad or your boyfriend. And three, 
don't ever sleep with anyone, ever, because you'll die. Those are all problems. The Hunger Games, on the other hand, is telling you, you know, your mom's probably going to flake out on you occasionally. You might have to step up and, um, you know, take care of yourself and anyone that you love. Um, but most importantly, it's take care of yourself and don't trust the capital T, capital M, the man. And I think that's important. So, yeah, The Hunger Games is probably part of the bread and circuses problem we're getting from Hollywood. But you know what? At least it's, you know, rye and not Wonder Bread. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalsford. I appreciate that analysis. We may be returning to some of those themes a little while later. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what analysis bring you? We might be returning to some of those themes now. As, (laughs) As he briefly talked about the patriarchy... I'd like to talk more about the patriarchy. Oh, would you? (laughs) This is why we brought you here. Yes. um, (laughs) As a female, I feel I can talk a little more about the perspective that Katniss experiences in this book. Uh, It first struck me, I guess I feel kind of bad for not noticing it the whole time, but whenever Katniss is in the training arena and she's showing her stuff, I looked in the box, they were all dudes, and they were all white, too. Even though we're in post-racial multicultural, there's a servant girl in there. But if you know the lore, if you read the book, um, there are these servant girls... In the expanded universe. Excuse me. <laughs> the, these servants are called the Avox, and it's they are mutes because they cut out their tongues, because they have spoken ill on the capital. Yeah. yeah. So, if you see one of these people, and I don't know if that was ever in a deleted scene, it's just been removed... Um, they are, she has one that's in the book and she talks to her and she knows who she is and what she has done. Um, but yeah, so the only person in this box that's a woman is a tongueless mute who, and then of course, Katniss, (laughs) yes, is trying to get their attention and then she's performing for these men and then it just hit me going back over and over again, um, going to the the mining community yeah Katniss is stepping it up and she's living off the grid but as soon as she's put back in the system because keep in mind District 12 is such an outlier the capital never really thinks about them too much until they gotta squash a rebellion you know Mm -hmm. so whenever she's plugged back in the system she's just a puppet and yo you might say oh well Effie Trinket well Effie Trinket's just the puppetiest of all puppets (laughs) she's constantly told by Haymitch to do stuff uh, she's constantly reminded by PETA that she needs to pretend to love him, thus playing into this role of, well, I'm a woman and I have to be X, Y, and Z things to complete the ideal that this system has put upon me as a female. I have to love him to get the attention of people. You know, going going even to Cinna. Cinna is a surrogate father figure, and he's great, and he's a wonderful person. Probably the only person that actually gives a crap about her. But he's also telling her, you need to do this, this, and this. You need to be pretty, laugh, laugh pretty, we're going to make you pretty. You know, it's all this all this stuff that they're putting on on these people. And it's just for the the men in power, the, the men and the man. Yeah. Capital T, the, capital the man. Yeah. Thank you for your consideration. And it's just, and I also noticed that in the Game Maker Central, which the Game Maker area was never revealed in the books at all, but they were kept on being told by a male Game Maker what to do, and all of the females had really, really 
you know, gender-neutral-looking makeup, and they either had closely cropped hair or their hair was completely pulled back, and they couldn't see that they were indeed a female. So she is saved by a man, saved because of her love of a man throughout this. It's not... She does win the Hunger Games, but on a technicality because they didn't want two snuffed teenagers sitting in an arena, and it's yay. And it's just completely... She's being told what to do the whole time by the men and man. And the, the answer is, you know, maybe she defeats, you know, both attributes. Maybe she's finally able to move past it, but from what I remember of reading uh, Catching Fire and Mockingjay, Mockingjay, sorry if you tend on reading it a little, um, she's really kept in the dark almost the whole time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's, again, even the women in charge of the rebellion don't ever keep her informed. And going back to the getting kept in the, the dark about what's really going mm-hmm. on, it's just, it's dark, like, all of it. You know, the p- fact that she really doesn't know any part of her own life. She has to live this masquerade for the, the rest of her time. It's, it's tragic, and, you know, it, it's heart-wrenching. And maybe the, the answer, the soulless, what could have been better, since we all had this reading of, there's something missing here, we don't know what it is, Maybe playing up on this, how she's, this trapped feeling, maybe a bit more could have helped solve that. Because once I'm talking about this, I feel much more intrigued in it, and it doesn't really um, reflect sometimes the movie that I ended up watching. You understand what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to finally getting around to Catching Fire, and I watched the Mockingjay Part 1 trailer today, and... It's intense, so we will see. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Ms. Mohanna. Thank you for troubling the water a little bit, because I think this film is sometimes touted as a sort of feminist yeah. she-raw yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, and it is. I mean, Katniss would probably be one of the few people that could withstand all of that crap, because that's a lot of crap thrown at a single person. And then, though, there's this whole empowering young girls with everyone's learning archery. That's like a big fad now because of Katniss. But... I mean, she is an extraordinary person under extraordinary circumstances that are requiring her to be that strong, but I don't know, I, as a female, I don't know if I could be that strong myself and be crushed by the patriarchy and the man. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much, uh, fellow co-hosts. Now, what I want to talk about, Donald Sutherland, uh, at the release of Catching Fire, was in the news and on the Twitter a little bit, and famously said that uh, he was hoping that the message and political messages of The Hunger Games and Catching Fire and, of course, uh, anticipating uh, the Mockingjay 2 films now at this point, that it would inspire revolutionary change, that it would transform society because of these uh, films. And I have to ask the question, can blockbuster movies do that? I honestly don't know the answer to the question. I don't even know if it's even possible. 
I, I would say this, so far it hasn't happened. There hasn't been a movie that's, that's happened where people said, okay, because of this movie, we are going to fundamentally alter the way we do democracy. We're going to fundamentally alter the way we do economics. We're going to fundamentally alter our foreign policy as a nation mm -hmm. in the long run. Because this movie showed up and did this thing. But uh, Theodore Adorno talks about this. At Frankfurt School, I thought we'd talk about for critical theory. Okay. And, and, and look at this. You know, Walter Benjamin was a member. Do you, I was say, do you want to let the listener in on what that means exactly? The Frankfurt School is uh, mainly you're going to talk about Theodore Adorno. You're going to talk about Walter Benjamin, a uh, guy called Horkheimer, uh, that were writing uh, the, the, the greatest... And, and most inspired moments of their of their lives was between the two world wars in Germany. These are German writers, and there was the rise of fascism, and they were critical of that. And they were trying to do uh, some sort of work with Marxist theory, and also working psychoanal mm -hmm. psychoanalysis in, and just trying. And the, the whole field that's known as cultural studies was born of the work of these men. And and Adorno and, and Benjamin is first is famous in his in his uh, very very famous uh, essay about the, uh, the work of Ark in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, about how the artwork itself that is sort of maybe culturally changing, thinking in terms of maybe like Pablo Picasso's Guernica when it was unveiled in protest to the Spanish Civil War, that there is this work of art that has its own aura. It's the one thing, there's one mm -hmm. original, and that's all there is. And that one work can have this sort of impact and power to begin to alter the people around it. But when we start mechanically reproducing art in terms of photographs, and celluloid and DVDs now and VHS tapes in the, the years past that the sort of the aura is lost and it's just mechanically reproduced industrialized artwork Adorno furthermore goes uh, goes on and says some of the similar sorts of things and, and talks about that how no matter how different movies or anything produced in this sort of mass industrial system and I, we'd have to say that The Hunger Games is mass-produced industrial cinema. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's part of the circus. It, yeah. yeah, absolutely, it, it is that, and that they're they're uniform in the whole in every part. Now, I'm, a lot of what I'm kind of cribbing from here is from his essay, "The Culture Industry: Enlightenment as Mass Deception," and so he's critiquing the Enlightenment mostly. But there is a, there's some very very um, cogent parts that deal with uh, cinema. And uh, so whatever those aesthetic things they do, they all are kind of in rhythm with the system anyway. And so how could such a thing be used to overthrow the said system that it makes? Again, this is a sort of proletarian uprising sort of thing that's being advocated in The Hunger Games. And Adorno makes this point about, well, you got to think about this. This is an industry. And when the director's incomes are published... Any doubt about the social utility of their finished products ought to be removed. That what these things do is they create a larger bit of income for people who are already in, you know, the one percent who live in the capital versus those in the uh, twelve outlying districts. And so those sort well, of well, and even in the event that they're a director who isn't already part of the system, and they become successful, then they get to be part of the system. Right. See your. Tarantino's and your Kevin Smiths and your Dennis Hoppers. Yeah, you graduate out of Michigan and now you get to go be in Hollywood with everyone else. Yes, yeah. right, and all the beautiful people. And 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 what happens is is that what the what's done for the public, even though we say, well, they're not all the same. How could they all be part of the system? And Adorno addresses this. He talks about how every 
the public is actually created in these sort of diagram demographics. We just talked about demographics and how they can get a hook in the product, but the product itself that they're producing is sort of the self-same sort of product that sort of reinforces the same ideas that the major culture ideology is, is suggesting, which is that you just could keep working hard and work yourself up and don't resist and don't fight back. The system's fundamentally good, that it actually works for everybody else, and, and if we if we keep your head down long enough, it's all going to eventually be a place where you're going to make it. Now, you see a movie like The Hunger Games, which seems to suggest otherwise. I think about Jen for Lawrence's performance here a little bit. And I think she's great. But there is a great section of the film that she does the cipher face. You know what I'm talking about when I say the cipher face? The neutral mask. The neutral mask face. Yeah. Where that that all she does is nothing. Something Keanu face. is a pro, a pro at. Oh, isn't that his normal face? Exactly. Like, that's 100% why he's a percent of a time. Yeah, that's, that's why he's a pro at it. And Jay Law is a great actress. But yes. she is doing that Thank face. Thank God for her. <laughs> she is doing this thing a lot. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is so that she can be sort of our vicarious vehicle as we experience the film. That we can, we can put ourselves in Katniss's shoes. And so that's, that's her role, is again, as, as sort of an audience vehicle. And, and, and the problem is, we've already done our resisting mm-hmm. but by experiencing the film. But in the process, what we've done is we've shelled out our monies and we've given our monies to the system. We've done our due diligence. And now we will orderly make our way out to all the exits that are marked in an orderly fashion. We will throw away all of our trash in the proper receptacles and we'll make our way to our vehicles and we'll obey all traffic laws as we make our way to our individual domiciles and continue perpetuating the same sort of system. Now, the question I want to ask, and the question I still don't know is, this movie is suggesting crazy, radical, revolutionary sort of things that we're not even entering into a conversation about their, their goodness or their badness, their effectiveness. You know, we're not talking about different forms of economics. We're not even, we're not going to get into the sort of things that guys in the Frankfurt School would get into. But here's the question. Is a blockbuster able to affect change? Now, the suggestion could be that the blockbuster would be the only place it would happen because that's where people see. That you could have real sort of rupturing, sort of eruptive, sort of confrontational cinema in the avant-garde and vanguard cinema, but nobody watches it. And I think it's an important point to make in case you lost that listener. Dustin isn't saying movies can't affect real change. I think you could probably find some that have. I've been struggling this entire conversation to think of some examples, probably something around the 60s. Um, but what Dustin is saying is, can this mass-produced art affect that change? Sure. And, and you're, what you're saying, yeah, I get what you're saying. Sure, those transgressive indie films and those transgressive films made outside of the system can, but on a large scale, probably not, because not a lot of people are seeing them. Yeah, I don't know. And, and the thing, the, the problem the avant-garde has is, yeah. for making the change is that, again, no one gets... Audience. The, yeah, they and have the, the audience. Audiences are made in that system. Yeah. So what needs to happen or should happen in order for this to occur? Now, there's an interesting case in point about this particular film, though. Uh, the three-finger salute has recently been banned in the Thai army. If you know, know the Thai, in Thailand, they recently had a military coup, and uh, there is a bit of uh, resentment and resistance going on. And several um, battalions and platoons have been making use of that three-fingered salute as a sort of sign of solidarity and resistance, and it's been a banned, punishable, imprisonable offense. Hashtag get wrecked! Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) you say hashtag get wrecked? Yeah! (laughs) So cool! 
Now, again, <laughs> are, are they just picking up some bit of the cultural zeitgeist? Are we, or have we just picked up some little piece of that and uh, now we have uh, made it meaningful in a way that it wasn't before? Or is the film itself sort of inspiring resistance to totalitarian and authoritarian systems? And is, it, is there any connection there at all? And can it even happen? That's, that's the question I would want to ask. And it seems like Suzanne Collins, whose work I've not read, seems to be suggesting this sort of alteration and change. Again, using a, a major printer's imprint and being part of that same mass-produced scholastic book studies and they're inside those little those little newsprint catalogs every year for the school children as they choose what books they want to buy. So th there's all of those sort of connections in her work uh, to the industrial system as well. Is it is it possible, or is it too married the system? Is it too sold out to even make any sort of change? And could a blockbuster really be a thing that turned the world inside out and upside down? And I just want to ask a quick straw poll. What do you guys think? I have no idea. And sometimes that's the most important thing to say. <laughs> I, I think I remember, I remember this quote, and I wrote it down on my scrap piece of paper, that... Um, I don't necessarily remember this quote from the book, but Donald Sutherland's Snow, President Snow character, he says, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. So just giving them little dabbles of hope is better than this totalitarian regime, and then there's an uprising because, you know, they can get motivated behind that. Can a vehicle like the Blockbuster work? I want to say a tentative, maybe leaning yes, but not here. I want to say that because we have too much of what he was saying. We still have this thing, especially in conservative America, not wanting to get political, but there's that boot, pull yourself by your bootstraps We mentality. do all the time, it's fine. Uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, get to work, go to town, get a job, who cares if you're homeless? Who cares if you're poor? Who cares if you can't read? Because good luck getting a job then, buddy. You know? Try cinema and, studies. Right. And <laughs> so I think it could work somewhere. But America, I don't know. <laughs> she's I, don't know all, I don't know all the hands. She's, she's picking it up real fast. Hey, sweetie. Right, it's like a baseball game. Right. <laughs> I get that. How about I'm sliding? That's a sportsy reference. I understand. <laughs> you were saying. I don't know if that kind of medium could work here, knowing what our society is relying on. And it's funny that it's even said in the very thing that we're critiquing. Maybe other places where, you know, Facebook is banned and these kind of outlets are more underground and. There are things of passing rebellion, but I don't feel like mainstream America thinks there's anything to rebel against right now. Mm -hmm. Fools. I'd echo her. That's, that's kind of what I was to say. I mean, I think it could work, and I think if you look in the history of cinema, and not, not necessarily blockbuster, if you look at Soviet cinema, where you have the government completely controlling cinema uh, because they're scared it could incite revolution, then I think it has that ability uh, and I think a blockbuster could do it, but I, I think Alexander's right. I don't think it'll do it in America, not for the foreseeable future. 
So there is hope to make change for the better. We could end some of the great injustices of the world, you know, racisms and genocides and those sort of things, but they're not hearing any of those sort of things here in an economic sense uh, or what have you. And that, that, But we'll see films that do things that actually do make changes, but they'll be small yeah. films, they'll be art house films. I, I think of The Cove, which was an Academy Award winning documentary. Yeah. And is is working to make some difference into uh, what's being done with dolphin hunting, you know, in that uh, particular location in Japan. So I mean, it can be done, but how many people saw the cove? I mean, that's the point, right? So uh, I don't I don't know, but we are doing the thing that we say. We talk about how the movies matter, how they help us live more satisfying, fulfilled lives, help us reflect on our own existence. And as we've been doing this week, or yeah, week, month of blockbusters, I have to ask myself this question as I was thinking about this most revolutionary of films that we've seen. I have to ask myself, I have to do my homework with my Adorno and go, is there really any possibility that this can do anything? And I think it's a valid question to be asking. And we What's funny is when we started this marathon four weeks ago, we kind of seemed to have convinced ourselves that it could with Matrix. Mm-hmm. So. Except for what's happened since then. Nothing. Exactly. More slow motion scenes and films. Right. And, and Kung Fu. We like Kung Fu in our violence. So, there you have it, dear listener. I hope that wasn't too much of a downer on the end of the analysis section. But uh, we've had a lot of fun with this movie. We have come to a point, though, where we must choose. You must choose. But choose wisely. And the choice is shelf or trash. And then I'm very interested to hear your else's instead. I ask you, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Stream it. Stream it. We're gonna we're gonna go with a, a cop out because I don't really feel like trashing it. That seems a little too harsh. And there seems to be a you know a general force for good in this film. I think regardless of. Uh, effectiveness. I feel like you know you can ape effort sometimes, and there's something here. I still don't love it, and I don't think I ever will. Uh, but yeah, trash just feels too strong, so I'll say stream it. Uh, instead, I, I would say check out Gamer, which actually isn't any better a film. It's actually a pretty bad film. Gamer? But yeah, we're starring Gerard Butler and Logan okay, and Logan Lerman and Michael C. If Hall. I was thinking the same Gamer yeah. movie. <laughs> it's you know it's it's your standard. Uh, it's just another post-apocalypse dystopian blood sport mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lot weirder and a lot yeah. more transgressive. Uh, and I like it, and I think that's why it didn't do very well because it's a major studio release <laughs> that is extremely transgressive. Michael C. Hall is the bad guy, and he does a dance number. Mm-hmm. So really. Yeah. I mean, that's not something people like to see. And also, there's a pervy, um, morbidly obese man. Uh, you know, so not things that society typically goes in for in terms of its film going. Uh, but I like it a lot. I think it's weird and it's funny and violent and interesting. So check that out. Uh, I would also say Winter's Bone, uh, which is, you know, kind of J-Law's breakout hit. Um, and basically, it's just if the first act of Winter's Sorry. If the first act of The Hunger Games was its own movie, it would be Winner's Bone. Yeah. Uh, and that's a film that I like a whole, whole, whole lot. Yeah. Um, I've only seen it the once, but I dug it quite a bit, and I recommend you check it out. Uh, finally, I would recommend my very, maybe one of my very favorite post-apocalypse films, and that's The Road Warrior, mm-hmm. which is just so good. It's so freaking good. It's better than the other two Mad Max films, I'll tell you that right now, uh, by a lot. Um, 
Oh, man, Road Warrior is awesome, and it's it's you know my in terms of just the film being about the apocalypse happened. What do we do now, and how do we live? That's probably my favorite. Uh, there's probably other films during the apocalypse and of a more specific apocalyptic event that I might like more. But in terms of the aftermath, it's probably my favorite, and I like it a lot. And if you're at all intrigued by the Hunger Games, I'd say go watch Mad Max because it features pre-freakout Mel Gibson doing some really good work and um, some really fabulous car chases. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohannon. Shelf or trash? Else or instead? For my shelf or trash or else or instead, I would say that I would kind of cop out, but I'll say I'll have it on my Netflix shelf. I don't own a copy of this movie. I don't know if I'd plan on watching it again, but I would like to know that I can watch it pretty much any time I want. So, stream it's always a solid answer. When yeah, you stream it's a good yeah. a good answer in between. Therefore, but instead of you, I'm going to say else instead of instead because I think that I have a few selections that would really complement this movie, but I don't think you really need to take its place. Mm. Um, my first selection would probably be V for Vendetta, based on the graphic novel. Uh, very good movie. It's got the you know, dystopian future, the society controlled by the scheming dictator, strong female lead, more men telling her what to do, things like that. Uh, and Stephen Fry. That's all I need to say on that one. <laughs> it's a solid pick. Yeah. Um, obviously, coming right off of that is 1984, since John Hurt. More John there. Hurt! It's just, I just was like, well, you know, I mean, that just leads right into it, so... 1984, another based on a novel adaptation. Uh, John Hurt, Dystopia, etc. Obviously, Catching Fire would be on this list. It's Hunger Games sequels. And then any more flavor of the month, young adult movies, Divergent, I guess, Mortal Instruments. You, there are a dime a dozen nowadays. You can just go and pick one up and it's like, oh, well, I didn't know this was a movie. Or a book first, before it was a movie. And uh, that's where I'm going to leave it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Miss Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, shelf or trash, else or instead? I'll say shelf. It's on my shelf because I have an addiction. Uh, I, I enjoy the, the series. I, I love Jennifer Lawrence, and this made her more than an indie darling. Uh, put her way over in Hollywood. And with that in mind, I think you watch Winter's Bone. Like Dalton said, it's a phenomenal mm -hmm. film. Uh, you watch Silver Lining's Playbook, solely for Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. it's about the best thing in that movie. Well, I mean, she got an Academy Award for a reason, right? I don't want to talk about that. I'm so mad she uh, beat Jessica Chastain. That's valid. Yeah. I'd also suggest checking out Pleasantville, because Gary Ross, and it's a fun movie. Uh, Catching Fire, as Alexander said. And then take your pick of dystopian film and or literature. There you go. Very good, Mr. Let's Arthur Gordon. Wrap, bring, wrap it up. Bring us home, Dustin. What are your uh, thoughts? I would. I'm going to say shelf. I'm going to say actual shelf. I'm going to. I'm going to go out and purchase this film to have because I want to have access to it. At Will all you times. really, or is this a the theoretical shelving? No, I'm going to do it. <laughs> this, you could this. probably get it for like fifteen, ten bucks now. Because yeah. I say shelf a lot and never buy anything. No, I, I think this is a this is a movie I want to go out and get. I want to. <laughs> I want to have this movie and uh, and just. It, I think it's it's that solid. I really enjoyed that much. Uh, so what, what I would say, what else you should watch? And I have uh, a sort of a strange pick, but I think it's interesting, and then an uh, obvious pick, I guess. And, and, the, and the strange pick is Cabin in the Woods. Because the okay. engineering of the spectatorship. 
Oh, all right. And, uh, oh, yeah. I knew that's where you were going with that. And and I as I kept watching this, I thought, oh, they're, they're, yeah, they're crazy engineers, right? They're puppeteers. Too bad they weren't Bradley Whitford and... Um, that other guy? Yeah, that other guy. I wish you could think of his name. Puppeteers. Puppet masters pulling the strings. Pulling the strings. And so, you know, and I, I, I wish to see those movies, and maybe if you saw them together, we would find some way to uh, bind the blockbuster machine with ancient logics and find ways to make it work out in a better way. Uh, the other movie I'd say you ought to watch that is a, in a more of a similar vein is Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. Good movie. I, I think uh, because of photography issues but also thematic issues mm-hmm. and uh, it's just an interesting film um, thinking about how to work one's way out of a dystopian society and to find some way to hope and dream for a better tomorrow which is the name of the both days end up on at the end and so those sort of thoughts are definitely uh, heavy heavy in my mind right now you know what other thoughts are always heavy on my mind our dear listeners how how we're able to talk to them and continue the conversation and to hear what they've got to say about what we've been saying on the show and so we move now to a very special time a crucial time the most important time if you will because it's not just about us gathering around a table talking because we're already friends We would do this stuff anyway. We're all bros here. We all like movies. (laughs) But this show, this podcast, is really about keeping the conversation going and to broadcast it via that magical means of the internet. So we're going to talk a little bit about social media. Dalton, you know anything about social media? I do, Dustin. You know, sometimes we watch a film with no monologues, and then I'm just shit out of luck, so I'll say this. Candace Everdeen uh, really is a fan of Mockingjays. I got a bird I like more, and that's Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, the Good Trash <laughs> genre cast can be found on Twitter at good underscore trash. Um, not a whole lot of feedback coming in. I will say, so many new followers. Ladies and gentlemen, last week, I don't remember how many followers we had, but I can tell you we have about 35 more. Nice. And this is a direct relation to our new co-host uh, for starters uh, and me following literally everyone in her followers list <laughs> via our good trash account she's anymore. internet famous um, no, but en- well, enough to I think a lot of these uh, I think a lot of these are bots um, yes OKC's <laughs> food truck app is following us uh, we got a, a follow from Mitchell uh, that's at I am I TCHC, who has 11 tweets and thousands of followers somehow. Uh, we also have uh, one of my favorite of our new followers. And this is, again, 30 new followers. One of my favorites of those uh, being... I already lost it. Give me a second, kids. That is one of my favorite of our new followers being B-Skip. He's at official B-Skip. His Twitter bio reading, Brandon Nieto, FB and... IG at official skip still slap hoes and rap about it hashtag best rapper from Stockton California B skip is very white I didn't know this person very even white. followed me until uh, just now I don't oh no I don't follow him he just followed us it turns out when you follow a lot of people at once you start getting more followers uh, because I think you're a follow back girl and we are not so but thanks B skip uh, not really any feedback. A couple of retweets and follow or favorites. Uh, Caleb Masters did chime in on horrifying childhood film experiences for us, though. 
He said he watched Bride of Chucky, that's right, the comedic one, at the age of nine and slept with one eye open on any of his dolls for weeks. Caleb, <laughs> you got a lot of dolls, huh? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. That was the first thing. Bride of Chucky. <laughs> Yes, he does. Caleb also <laughs> wrote to both us and Alex uh, and said, Alex, I'm glad you're now a full-time co-host. Good Trash deserves a full-fledged English graduate. Great Jaws show. Thank you, Caleb. But uh, Arthur is... Yeah. Well, thanks, Caleb. Oh, you're yeah, in the English I department. Was, I was thinking the whole time, it's like, this kid's going English. for Your BA's in English? PhD hey, in film. Your BA's in English. Yeah. Caleb, don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of English here. Except for you. And then they talked about how great Dustin is. And then Caleb said one more thing that I feel like was directed directly at me, but we're going to talk about that and fire it up. So <laughs> that's what we've got coming in in the way of feedback on Twitter. Uh, Caleb Vesley, still missing in action. Caleb, your, our thoughts and prayers go out to you because I can only assume you have been taken hostage by some sort of uh, ill-minded fiend. It's probably true. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Mr. Arthur Gordon. Is there any other means of social media that you know anything about? Uh, well, there is one called Facebook, I believe. And you can find us on facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast, one word. Uh, about movies that made us fearful of the ordinary, the childhood fears. Is that what that official title was? Some, yeah, films that made you afraid to do normal things or something. I don't know. It was a long title. Yes. yes. Uh, Randall Bay says the movie Scream uh, made him fearful of phone calls while alone. The birdcage made him fearful that he would end up just like Nathan Lane. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Randall. I got bad news, Randall. <laughs> Randall, you should be so lucky to be like Nathan Lane. He's a star of stage and screen. <laughs> and then I asked about uh, if anybody was excited about Comic-Con or if they were looking forward to anything. Uh, Randall says he was looking forward to the Ant-Man and Vikings panels. Uh, Nick Sanford went a little crazy for Interstellar, and Brigham highlighted Daniel Radcliffe's new film, Horns, and he shared a trailer with us for that. Yeah, that's been in production for a while, and I've been hearing about it for a while, and it looks good. I'm just really intrigued He wears the it. horns well, I must say. Uh, that's all I've got from Facebook. You can also email us, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Of course, the show can be found at our main website, which is goodtrashgenrecast.podbean.com. Dot com. You can listen to us via iTunes. Please give us a rating and a review there. That's very, very helpful to keeping the conversation out there to get us to more and more folks and to be able to have more and more uh, informed and fulfilling conversation. And of course, we're also available to Stitcher Internet Radio and Tumblr. GoodTrackedOnTheCast.tumblr.com Com. Well, moving right along as the time has gotten by, it is now time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> this week's game are famous cinematic personalities you would not wish to face in the Hunger Games. That's right, famous cinematic personalities you would not wish to face in the Hunger Games. Brought to you by the Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. When you need dead children. Call hunger. I don't know. You're a monster! <laughs> that implied you were going to eat them later. I hope you know. Is that what happens to all those Feed the no, Hungry Jonathan extras? Jonathan Swift essays have gotten serious. Satire, man. Satire. I don't write these out ahead of time. They flow through me. I'm, I'm, I'm not the artist. I'm just the pen. 
Mm. I know not where the words come from. <laughs> well, well, that is the game. Who do you not wish to face? We are going to limit ourselves to human foes. Of course, none of us would like to face the Predator. Consider the, this the Predator uh, Memorial Game. Yes, because, yes, that would be bad. Also, Arnie as the Terminator would be a very, very bad day, and we all assume that. So, we are going to now move on and play the game as we should with human characters. Mr. Dalton Stewart, who's your pick? Well, um, one of my, my first thoughts that came to mind was uh, Robert Muldoon. That's the game warden in, or whatever his title is, in Jurassic Park. Because... He's a bad man. Yeah, yeah, sure. A Velociraptor took him out. I don't think I could. He's a pro hunter. Uh, but if I did take him out, I would get to hear him say, Clever girl. And that would make it worth it. If you took him out? In the unlikely event. He'd say clever girl. Yeah. Of course he would. The unlikely event. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I would, if he said anything other than clever girl, I'd be like, well, screw it, I'm just going to go home. This is bullshit. I'm done. I'm done. Um, Where's the exit? Nextly, uh, I would say Clint Eastwood's the man with no name, because there is no more badass a character in all of cinema. He never loses. A lot of action heroes get beat up and they come back at the end. No, the man with no name is literally, there's never any chance that he's not going to win. Uh, last but not least, a TV pick, Ron Swanson. Because he is the manliest of all men, and if anyone is going to beat you in a in a man hunting competition in the woods, it's him. That makes me happy. Excellent, very very well played, sir. Mister Arthur Gordon, what say you? I would first say Otway from The Gray, played by Liam Neeson. Good pick. Um, you think most of Neeson's recent action star turns, and then you give him a gun and drop him into the middle of the Arctic and uh, see what he has to do. Otway is tough, he's a survivor, and even in the face of danger, he says, F you, tape shards of glass to his knuckles, and then he has to do what he's got to do. Uh, the guy's a fighter and he's a survivor. I wouldn't want to match him. Uh, and fitting with the uh, motif of the Hunger Games, I've picked a girl as well. I'd say the bride from Kill Bill. Yep. Don't want to fight her. She's ever. vindictive, Mm-mm. bloodthirsty, well-trained, deadly, and she's durable. Uh, being able to sustain a lot of damage to get her goal, she'd be tough to put down in the games. Excellent. I like that pick very much. Well played, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Miss Alexander Bohan. All right. Plays? I hope I'm not cheating by saying this because I helped develop some of the rules, but I would say Cherry Darling from Planet Terror. Who wants to fight a girl with a gun leg? No. No. I, I don't want to. I'm out. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know for most of the movie she's walking around with a you know table leg, but gun leg, cherry darling, bad news, and of course any of Scott Pilgrim's evil exes that he has to fight. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about Scott Pilgrim this week, and just all of them, especially the vegan, especially the vegan. Gelato isn't vegan. <laughs> no <can> eggs, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bad, bad, bad decision. Alrighty, guys. Well, I think my selections. Uh, first of all, I do not want to face Heath Ledger's Joker. Ooh. Uh, he doesn't seem like much as a, of a survivalist, though. But, no, but he would. Uh, he would have me set up, and I wouldn't even know it. And then I would just walk no. into. You it. would walk That's onto fair. all those mine plates in the middle near the cornucopia. He'd like dig them up and. It would just like trigger a video of him laughing until he stepped off of them and died. And then I died. It would just. Yeah. It would not go well for me. Also, from. Uh, 
No Country for Old Man, Anton Chigurh, because that man will not stop. No, and he killed Woody Harrelson. <laughs> yeah, right. He won the Hunger Games. He won the Hunger Games, right? So do not fuck around with Anton Chigurh, friendo. <laughs> friendo. He gets away at the end I with know. a broken arm that I'm, he sets himself. I know. Don't do it. So, yeah, I, I, I don't want any of that. I'm out. Totally out on that. Well, dear listener, we would love to hear your picks. Uh, real life sort of analog-ish. We've played a little with the real-life-ishness of some of the characters, but we're talking not aliens, not superheroes. We're talking about people that you do not want to face. Yeah, no cyborgs, no aliens, no werewolves. Nobody with magic. Mostly human. You know, I'm really surprised nobody said Rambo. I thought about it, but I assumed somebody else would. I did too. Yeah. Oh, I also thought about Dutch, which is Schwarzenegger's character in Predator, because he kills the Predator. (laughs) There is that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> who's more scary than the predator? And, and much the like, guy that kills predators. Exactly. I will beat your face in with yeah. my knuckles and my feast. And much like Rambo, he you know shoots grenades with a bow and arrow. There is that. And as we saw, bow and arrow pretty helpful in the Hunger Games. It, yeah, it's definitely a handy tool to have when you're doing that. It's covered in mud. Well, that was good times, folks. That was lots and lots of fun. Let's move on to the last part of our show, our favorite part, the ending part. What was that? That's the finale. We'll talk about that. His favorite part, the ending part. (laughs) (laughs) That which we are fired up about this week in pop culture. And this is the chance we have to talk about the things that we're excited about or the things we're kind of angry about. So, fired up could be one or the other, just so you know. So, let's uh, begin with uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would. Uh, Yeah, I'm kind of fired up this week, guys. Um, By the time this drops, I will hopefully be seeing or will have seen Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, which opens this weekend. Take me with you. It opens like Thursday night. Oh, I assumed it was a press screen. Never mind. I wish. I wish. That's Keisha, man, not you. Sorry, buddy. It's okay. Uh, I'm very, very, very hyped up to see this movie. You too, Rick. Super excited. Love Chris Pratt. Uh, just looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be the first Marvel movie I haven't seen in an opening weekend in a long time. Really? I'm not going to be able to opening weekend, and I'm real bummed out about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of, of course, they just announced the sequel already yep. at Comic-Con. They announced mm-hmm. the sequel for it, which means they have a lot of hope and faith in it mm-hmm. and, and in Mr. Gunn. Well, it opened overseas already, didn't it? Has it? it may I have. think it opened overseas it may this have. weekend. I think yeah. it happened with Captain America, That's too. Marvel's thing for a while now. Yes. Yeah. opening it a week early in Europe. Um, as Alexander mentioned earlier, the Mocking Drape trailer... Uh, open today, drop today, and it looks like it has a lot of potential. I'm interested. It's, it's. I think it, the second one is really a step in the right direction. So I'm interested to see where the third one and the fourth one will go. Uh, the Hobbit three trailer also released today. Not as exciting as past trailers, and I'm not as into it as I could hope to be. But I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, I've also been reading Stephen King's latest, uh, Mr. Mercedes, and it's pretty smooth and has some interesting characters, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, finally, the other thing, uh, this past weekend. Um, Luke Besson's Lucy beat Hercules at the box office and I think that's just really interesting that an action film led by Scarlett Johansson uh, beat out a, uh, a movie about Hercules I'm just glad Luke Besson beat Brett Ratner yeah that's, that's a step in the right direction Hollywood mm. so there you go excellent thank you very much Mr. Arthur Gordon Mr. Dalton Stewart if you would sir I will so I've already alluded to once my love of Mad Max uh, the thing that Caleb tweeted us was the trailer from Comic-Con for Mad Max Fury Road. And it's so good, guys. It's so good. 
This movie's been in production for a really long time. It's been in production so long that Mel Gibson was originally going to reprise his role as Mad Max. And then Mad, you know, Mad Mel happened. So that wasn't a thing anymore. Uh, I love Tom Hardy. We've talked about this a lot. He's great in everything he's ever done. Even his, you know, blockbuster roles where he doesn't have anything to do. True. Um, I like practical effects. This movie's going to be 90% practical effects. George Miller's back. And although he hasn't really done anything other than Mad Max and Babe, Pig in the City, and Happy Feet. Really strange filmography. Totally makes sense. <laughs> okay, we'll talk yeah, about that later. it's a trilogy. Okay. It is. Okay. It's about love. Oh, okay. And violence. Yes. Um, Dustin shook his head at me. I guess he doesn't care about Mad Max or is just... I don't know. Um, I'm so happy. This trailer is amazing. I, I, I've said before on the show, you can make a good trailer out of anything, and I believe that you can make a good trailer out of the worst movie in the world, but I have high hopes, because it was a good trailer, and I've just, I'm really excited about it. I've been looking forward to this for a while. It's been on production for a long time, so hopefully good things happen. Um, Comedy Central premiered a new show this week, um, last week rather, now that you're hearing this, um, called The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail. Uh, that's Jonah Ray and Kamel Nanjiani, two stand-up comedians I really like. Um, they've been running this show out of Meltdown Comics in L.A. for like four years now. And Comedy Central said, hey, do you want to, you know, turn this into a TV show? And they said, yes, but only if you don't change anything. We're still going to do it in the back of a comic book store. We're still going to focus on the fact that the comedians that come out here are actually friends and they hang out and stay for each other's sets and have a good time. And we want to show that backstage. So if you want to see your favorite comedians... Uh, some of mine were in the first episode. Pete Holmes, Mark Marin, Neil Brennan, Moshe Kasher. Um, blanking on some other names of some lady comics that I really like that were on that episode, which is a bummer that that was where I chose to blank out. But we're not perfect, are we? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm failing. I'm failing. <laughs> I know. Patriarchy. Yeah, I know. It was an accident. And I don't have time to get my phone out. Um, so, yeah, it's a good show. Uh, Kamel Nanjiani's wife, Emily Gordon, uh, who he does his podcast, Indoor Kids, is there, even though she's not a comic. She's the produ- one of like the producers of the live show. So she's there. You get to see her basically mama-bearing all these comics, delicate egos, and it's it's a funny show, um, and I like it a lot, so you should do that. Finally, you know, that you know, no, that's enough. You don't need to hear anything else. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Bell Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohannon. Are you fired up this week? I have a couple of firing things happening in my brain, I suppose, in pop culture storage system. Okay, um, I've after the Hunger Games went off, it plugged me, hey, go watch House of Cards, and I'm like, okay, I'll just watch the trailer. (laughs) And then then I was just like, oh, if this wasn't midnight, I would totally be watching this now. It's good stuff, right? Oh, yeah. So that, that's on my backlog to be reprised as immediately as I can make it. I'm also on a non-media nature. I'm participating in this event called Gishwish, which is put on by Misha Barton, I think, of Supernatural fame. Supernatural's big and chicks online. <laughs> you mean but, of the OC fame, yeah. don't you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, it is an international scavenger hunt where I'm on a 15-member pl- team, mostly comprised of people that frequent Tumblr, and uh, we're going to go take pictures of this <laughs> stuff and do wacky activities, and it's going to be a r- rockin' good time, so I'm excited about that. And lastly... I'm glad I'm glad Dustin said that we could be fired up 
in an angry way. I yes. guess we did. We fail to tell you that when we started this show. Well, when you joined us. I I t- I was going to do it anyway, but I'm glad I have permission to do it. Yeah, no, we do it all the time. Yes. Okay. So I have, I don't think I've heard an episode where someone got fired up angry. Yeah, I'm Rare. pretty. Yeah, me and Arthur are pretty peaceful. It's usually Dustin. I fired. I got fired up angry today. <laughs> Whenever I watched. The Fifty Shades of Grey trailer. Did <laughs> you? Yes, I did. I was curious. Keep in mind, I, I watched the trailer for The Conjuring right before I watched the Fifty Shades of Grey trailer. I was scared more by the Fifty Shades of Grey trailer. I'm not even. I'm not even crapping you. Like I'm not even shitting you. I'm gonna say it. I'm not. I, I mean, I'm not. You can swear. I do it all the Sorry, time. Sorry, you can say shitting. That's fine. I. When, after I finished watching The Conjuring, the trailer, I was just like, this is scary. But then I watched the Fifty Shades of Grey trailer, and I was... First of all, they cut it like a horror movie. I don't know if any of you have seen it. <laughs> I haven't, no. I- I've seen it. D- yes. Just, yes, they cut it like yes. a horror movie with the weird reverse violins and everything. Like, the cuts, like that, the... <laughs> You know, that they do in horror movies. And Beyonce's song is all kinds of creepy with it. Yes, too. that is creepy. The, don't know looking so crazy right now. Whatever, that. They Good do song. really creepy. They mm-hmm. they make the tempo really, like, slow they and nasty. And then, to, I mean, they besides they cut it like a horror movie, when I was done watching it, I felt disgusted and queasy. And I was just, I was appalled. And I don't say that lightly. And I know people toss around a lot of words, but I was legitimately disgusted by watching that trailer. And I... Now I gotta watch this trailer. And that's the thing that I'm so sad about. Because being able to express my disgruntledness and just... The no words that are coming out of my face right now. People are going to watch the trailer, and I'm sorry, but I just can't... I have to. I can't, No, I know, but I just can't believe that we're going to have something like thing. this in cinema on Valentine's, on Valentine's Day. Day. It's, on, it's a Valentine's Day movie about BDSM, by the way, yeah, yeah, in totally. abusive relationships. BDSM yeah. in abusive relationships on Valentine's Day. I want to say for the record, dear listener, that, uh, you know, one does not... I mean, those are mutually exclusive things, just because... There's BDSM involved doesn't mean it's an abusive relationship, but yeah, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. But the the BDSM community apparently has released stuff that says this is unhealthy. Yeah, they they ain't a fan of this movie. Stuff we like. For the record, what you do, we we're not interested in, but we are not proponents of abusive relationships, emotionally or physically. Oh, I was disgusted and. I, that was. That I said, was, if a film's gonna feature keggle balls, obviously it should be released on Valentine's about Day. That. Oh my god! That is the first time we've ever said that word on this show. <laughs> Hopefully, I mean, left. <laughs> keep in mind, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey did start as a Twilight erotic fan fiction. Yes, after it did. All. Correct. So the fact that I find it interesting, though, that. It took this turn. I guess people put get inspiration for these things in so many ways. And while Edward was abusive in his own way, and that's another soapbox, um, yeah, that it took a very creepy turn. If that's the thing, if you're going to keep something from Twilight, you know, why, you know, keep the emotional abuse and not the vampires? I don't know. 
Thanks, Alex, for those things about which you're fired up. I appreciate them all. Well, Mr. Sells, as always, we end with you. Please tell us what's got you fired up this week in popular fiction mechanics. I'm only going to suggest one thing, and that's one thing has been riding the wave the last three weeks of the show. I finally got around to catching Snowpiercer. It's oh. fantastic. Where'd you Watch see it? it. Watch it now. Amazon's Prime. I did. I did via the the home media option, and so it is definitely, definitely great. I, I think perhaps the budget shows in places and whatnot, and that's fine. But uh, man, that's a good movie, and it's the Captain America movie I always wanted. Yeah. And that made me really. Allison really... Pill fires a machine gun while pregnant in a room full of children. It, yeah, it does happen. It does happen. Uh, but uh, Chris Evans turns in a performance that really blew me away. And uh, mm-hmm. it's super good, super good. So watch it, watch it now. Watch it again after you watch it now, and then after that, watch it a third. Time. I'm glad you liked it, buddy. Yeah, it was good stuff. So let's move on, though. Now, as we've concluded the show, thank you so much for sticking with us this far, dear listener. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback about what we said, what we didn't say, how we said it right or how we said it wrong, and just more about how we can keep the conversation going. But in the meantime, we have another film to watch. And guess what, gang? We're going to do an entire month of host picks. Yep, starting with August. Before I announce our first host pick, we have an even better, more important announcement to make. And that is that we are going to go to the talkies together as a show on Tuesday, August 5th at the Harkins Theater, downtown Oklahoma City. We don't have a time at this time, but we'll be catching Raiders of the Lost Ark for the uh, main evening showing, and we would love for you, dear listeners... Tuesday, August the 5th, one more time. Tuesday, August the 5th, Harkins Theater, downtown Bricktown, Oklahoma City. We would love to see you there. We will be um, ourselves, and therefore completely unrecognizable. But um, if you follow the loud ones, we'll probably be by them. So uh, track us down. We'd love to meet you in person. And uh, see you, and we'll watch a movie, and perhaps go out and do something thereafter. So that could all occur. Tip over a cop car, get crazy. That's what we do. Or a crane, or a crate of grain, maybe. And then we will be doing an episode over that on the eleventh. We'll be recording it. We I don't know when you'll listen to it, but you'll get to hear what we think and analyze about it. The following will be Miss Alexander Bohannon's pick. Welcome to the show, Alex. And so she has picked that for her film. So we want to announce that now because we want to see you at the cinema. And so we're going ahead and announcing two weeks from now. But we need to talk about next week's pick. And guess what, gang? It's what? Dustin's. I get a pick for next week. That's right. It is. Well, I'm scared. Because the last time Dustin had a pick, when we did our month of host picks, when we introduced this concept last year, <laughs> it was Days of Heaven, which I still have a troubling relationship with. So I'm curious what it will be this time. Well, there's probably not as much acclaim. (laughs) I think that's safe to say. And uh, so uh, Mr. Paul Verhoeven has made him great many films. And we're going to be taking a little look at a movie called Total Recall. Oh, snizza! Welcome to the party, Richter. And we're so glad you're going to be there with us also, dear listener. And so we'll be moving right on into that and through that, and so it ought to be great times and good analysis. But in the meantime, take a look at the movie The Hunger Games. I kept thinking there was like some sort of subtitle. I couldn't think of it. <laughs> the Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, take a look at all of our selections. Take a look at Total Recall ahead of time in re- preparation for next week. But 
absolutely, absolutely, don't just watch them in isolation. Have a conversation. Take to the internet and tell people what you think and let iron sharpen iron as we consider what makes life better and more satisfying and how the art reflects life and life reflects art and back and forth and synergism. And we'll see you next time.